This is our World Cup special. Yes. World Cup in football. Yes. Men's World Cup. Men's World Cup. Men's World Cup special. Um, so we're very excited about this. This is we're recording this out in just before, like in the middle of the third set of group matches, the final group matches. Yes. And the group in which our teams <laughs> is situated because that's the same group. Yeah, haven't yet played their third games. No, the tomorrow never knows. Uh, the, to- the tomorrow never knows themed group, uh, which features Mexico, uh, Sweden, Sweden, Germany, and South Korea. And South Korea. Yes, I was thinking, who is it? But it's the team Germany haven't played yet. That's why I couldn't remember. Oh, yeah. So this <sighs> is a controversial bit of this. This. Um, episode that Charlotte, who isn't a German citizen, but has German heritage, supports Germany over England. I do. Um, yes, so I was raised with a, a mum with German heritage and a dad with Irish heritage. So the England football team were not hugely supported in my house. Mm. Although my my brother supports England. Um, I think my mum now has a soft spot for England. I actually have a soft spot for this specific English team. Mm. Um, I have always deeply disliked the England football team and I've always deeply disliked a lot of the kind of national spectacle that goes on around the England football yeah. team. But actually this one's nice, partly because I think our expectations are so low in England for this football team. And also because, as people keep pointing out, they just seem like nice young men. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if this is to do with my age more than their age, but yes, they just seem true. to be quite young and... Yeah you know a team whereas what I remember from from previous tournaments the England team seems to be quite divided Mm -hmm. and it seems to be big stars and then yeah the kind of people serving them up the FA has a really odd role in English football like they have quite a lot of control over the national team or there's a lot of pressure on the manager from the FA and the FA has a lot of you know power of the the national manager Mm. and so historically there have always been this sort of like oh these people have to be in the team or these big names have to be in the team um, and they're also kind of one of the reasons that I like this England team is that there are sort of key figures who featured in the England football team for long periods of time that I really deeply dislike, like John Terry, for example, oh, yeah. um, who played for a long time for England and kind of tainted England for me. Yeah, I um, mean, I could I could never support any team that John no, Terry plays exactly, in. Exactly. Whereas now, you know, it's lots of lovely people like Raheem Sterling and Danny Rose and Harry Kane and. All these lovely, you know, Kyle Walker, all these lovely footballers I like, Jordan Pickford, <laughs> uh, lovely young men who seem sort of generally well to put together. Um, so I'm actually enjoying the England team not doing too badly. Um, yeah. But at heart, I'm a Germany fan. And this has been a really, really difficult World Cup so far for a Germany fan. Yeah, congratulations on your first difficult World Cup since, what, <laughs> 1989? Yeah, it is not, I am not emotionally prepared for this. I I am emotionally prepared for supporting a good team whilst surrounded by people who support a bad team. <laughs> so I'm emotionally prepared for being kind of generally really smug about the fact that my team and all of the individual players within it are brilliant and that we cruise through to the quarterfinals or the semifinals pretty much every time. We score loads of goals. We always win on penalties. You know, that's what I'm prepared for emotionally, which is a very different experience to supporting Peterborough United. 
True. Um, my, and and supporting Germany this time, the in, Germany against the Mexico match re, reminded me more of Peterborough United than is comfortable in an international. Yeah, match. I was going to say that that was pro- probably the highest praise that the German uh, experience <laughs> against Mexico has. It's probably harsh on Peterborough United. <laughs> um, so yes, but and of course you're a Sweden supporter. Yes, although this it's not actually as clear cut as that because I come from a part of Sweden where we don't normally deal with the Swedish flag and stuff very well mm-hmm. but I was talking about this to my boyfriend the other day and he asked if there are because historically I come from a part of Sweden that used to be Danish mm-hmm. and I mean it's been Swedish for 300 years but we have a different accent and we have a different history and we have quite a lot of objections to mm-hmm. being governed from Stockholm and stuff um it's a really prosperous region and we're like the bread baskets of mm-hmm. Scandinavia basically along with the rest of Denmark but um it's so we're we definitely can't be like pitied. <laughs> uh, we've done quite well in our sort of antagonism against Stockholm. But um, my boyfriend asked me if if there were people from Malmo who would support Denmark mm-hmm. as a result of not necessarily wanting to identify as Swedish or with Sweden. And I don't actually think that there are any people mm. who go for Denmark. I think when it comes to football, you support Sweden. Yeah. But I'm a Malmo FF supporter mm-hmm. and. We don't deal with Sweden at all. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the flag that the Malmö players have on the back of their shirts is the Skåne flag, the local province mm. flag. Um, you will never see any Swedish flags at any games. You will see a lot of Skåne flags. That's really interesting. Um, and I remember going to the... When Malmö qualified or qualifying through the Europa League quite a lot of years ago maybe 2011 2012 2013 mm-hmm. i can't actually remember we drove to um wales because they were mm-hmm. playing swansea and there was one supporter who came on to the stand wearing a sweden shirt and got mm. booed wow <laughs> booed off the stand actually she left and i don't think she returned which is maybe not such a great thing but um so there is a complicated history mm-hmm. there but when it comes to the actual national team we also have the benefit of having a lot of players in the national team who mm-hmm. are former Malmö players because yeah. Malmö is Malmö and Gothenburg are by far the most mm-hmm. dominant clubs in Swedish history. Malmö is the dominant club over the mm-hmm. past decade. So a lot of them have some sort of connection to Malmö. They've either yeah. gone through the ranks and actually been proper Malmö players since childhood or they they've played there for a few years before mm-hmm. becoming professionals. Yeah, this is that. I always had um my favourite player for a long time, my favourite Germany player was Bastian Schweinsteiger. Um, and he played his, obviously played his last World Cup mm. last, last, last time in uh, 2014. He played in the uh, 7-1 defeat of Brazil and in the final. Um, there's a really famous, I guess, I don't know famous, there's, there's a really striking picture of Schweinsteiger going off after the final with blood streaming down his face, mm. um, looking like he's like fought a battle and it's his final game for for Germany and it's this big thing um but actually you know there's other German players as well so and one of the reasons I like Schweinsteiger is because he played in England and so you could or when he came to play for England it was nice it came came to play in England it was nice because Mm. and things like people like Mesut Ozil as well I got really excited because at one point it seemed like uh, Sammy Kadira might be coming to Peterborough no (laughs) sadly (laughs) sadly not Peterborough um, he was sort of rumoured to be coming into the Premier League. I can't. I don't think for Arsenal. I think maybe for Manu. Mm. And I got really excited that Kadira might come, and I could put him in my fantasy football team as well. Um, 
but he sadly that didn't happen. When, how long have you been into football? Was it like a definitive moment when you started watching football? I was trying to remember this. So I think um, local football, uh, Peterborough, was um, when I started secondary school. My dad used to take my brother um, and I used to go too. And I had a season ticket for Peterborough only for one year. Actually, I had a season ticket for the first year of my A-level. So when I was like 16, 17, the year before that was the year that they'd won promotion um, and they played the last promotion game at Wembley, oh, okay. like the last one at the old Wembley before it was mm. before it was the new Wembley. And um, about I remember it was during my GCSEs, but like just before we broke up for exams, and it was in like revision classes. And about half of Year Eleven was missing because everyone had gone to Wembley <laughs> uh, to go and watch Peter for, get promoted. And we had the thing we always win at the old Wembley. We'd never lost a game. Oh, excellent! Whenever we got into the playoffs, we were promoted. Um, so sort of secondary school and then the first because the first World Cup I remember well it's not a World Cup so the first international football I remember is Euro 96 okay when I was 11 so that was the end of primary school and I remember it for two reasons I mean one it's hosted in England right so it's one of those things that I think as an 11 year old I was I was a kind of a girl who was not very I definitely was not into sport and I wasn't into football and I didn't follow football but it was impossible to avoid in England in Mm. 1996 obviously everything was 96 the England flag was everywhere um I wrote a piece recently for history workshop online about the England football team's relationship to kind of nostalgia and history and the England flag was everywhere because the FA had made a conscious decision to kind of promote the England flag Mm. um partly I think just because it is the English team, obviously, not the British team, but also because the Union Jack in the 1970s and 80s had picked up really a real kind of taint of racism because of its association with the National Front and the BNP. Mm. And so there was this really real push. So a lot of the promotional material for the 96 Euros had small children, kind of an ethnically diverse group of small children with their faces painted like the England flag, and that was a, sort of a big trope of it. So I remember that. And That's then, quite interesting because I think nowadays it's, course, isn't it the opposite. It is absolutely because I and I I don't know if this is you know it's racism racism has become devolved. Um, <laughs> so we but it's the you know the the BNP has evolved into the EDL right. We've yeah. gone from the British National Party to the English Defence League, mm. and the England flag has got a really difficult thing now. When Emily Thornberry tweeted a picture of that like that house with the white van outside and the england flags mm. she was criticized for it but a lot of people when they looked at that picture understood the critique yeah. that she was making or not the critique the point that she was making like england flags do make people feel uncomfortable for legitimate and understandable reasons they make me feel uncomfortable and i <laughs> um today i chose not to send my daughter to nursery wearing a pair of england shorts <laughs> So, I mean, feel free to send me lots of hate mail after yes. this if you disagree with my stories. You'll have to resign but I wouldn't the necessarily. Cabinet. I would send her to nursery in a Sweden top. But I think that's a different thing because that's we're foreign here. I yeah, mean, she's, it's she's, different, isn't she's it? She's a British citizen as well as a yeah. Swedish citizen. But it's... Um, I, don't, I don't know. It's the whole majority culture thing that makes me feel quite uneasy. And then everything that it means to a lot of people who see it. Absolutely. The other reason, of course, that I remember Euro 96 is that Germany won. Mm. Um, and not only did they win, but they knocked out England in the semi-finals. In yeah, penalties. I was just going to say, because that's normally why people talk about Euro 96 is mm-hmm. because England reached the semi-finals. Yes, <laughs> and then Germany knocked them out at penalties and then they beat the Czech Republic to win. I had a very glorious path to starting to watch football for the first time. It was the World Cup in 1994, mm. where Sweden actually came third. Mm-hmm. And... 
unlike many people in Britain, uh, I know that there was a bronze game and mm-hmm. Sweden won that bronze. Um, so I think that kind of skewed my expectations for, for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd been aware of, of football as a kind of national contest since Italy 1990, mm. um, where this Sweden is... did horrifically badly. I think they lost every yeah. game 1-2 that they had and didn't make progress beyond the group, despite having some very good players. But then the Euros of 1992 were in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And this is another reason why I I cannot support England playing football because part of Euro 1992 was held in Malmö and there was the biggest riot. Mm-hmm. Um, caused by English fans, of course. Mm-hmm. I think it was like peak hooliganism. Era. Yeah, it is. That is early nineteen nineties. Is that that peak moment of English hooligans going overseas? Yeah, and it's it was just. I remember my dad had colleagues who were trapped in their office and stuff, mm-hmm. and it's like you know it wasn't particularly traumatic, but it was just such a stupid thing to do. And mm-hmm. it just <laughs> whenever anyone asks me if I can support. England in football at some point I'll, I always refer them back to 1992 <laughs> See this is the thing I think with supporting you know I'm as I said earlier like I'm happy that the England team is not really objectionable to me anymore and I quite enjoyed watching them beat Panama although I think people need to not get carried away It was Panama it like was I was saying Panama. it's not Germany um, like Sweden sort of lost too <laughs> um, But I, I I didn't feel I don't care particularly about the England team right I don't feel it I think it's not I think sometimes I think previously I've had the experience of telling people that I'm a Germany supporter and people have thought that this is a sort of glory hunting yeah either glory hunting or a kind of um just like a like being obstinate like I'm picking to support something that's not England like it's just me you know I'm this sort of feminist anti-nationalist anti-empire person and I'm not supporting England I'm picking another team and it's all this big kind of show and then I was thinking about that a little bit in the back of my mind when I was watching, God, both the Germany-Mexico match, which was just miserable, but then actually watching Germany-Sweden. Um, so at the beginning of the match, you WhatsApped me to say that we should have recorded us watching it live. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and at the beginning of that, I was thinking, thank God we didn't do that. And actually, I still think, thank God we didn't do that. Even though Germany yeah, thank won. God we didn't do that because all of our listeners would have burst eardrums from the shouting that went on in my house when Ola Toivonen, a former Malmö player, mm-hmm. uh, scored that goal. Yeah, it was. I mean, it would have shortened your life. Well, and then the and then the moment with the final Germany. See, I didn't see that. This oh. is the benefits of having having a young child. I had to go and put her in bed, <laughs> and she, I only managed to get downstairs just after. It happened when there was the the Barney between the we were watching Sweden it. And, and Germany bench instead. I yes. saw that, so I didn't see anything else. We were watching it, and my partner, who is um, actually has English and Irish citizenship, but is supporting England in this World Cup, um, and not Germany, even though he lived in Germany for a year. We were watching the game together, and he said, "Oh, it's going to go around the wall and go in the top corner," and then it did. Um, oh, so it, it was, was his fault. Good, it was. I'm. I was going to say, I'm sorry, of course I'm not sorry. Why would I be sorry? Um, So (laughs) hopefully Germany will progress out of this group. And And hopefully hopefully, Sweden will too, Yes, I mean, hopefully. I I do feel very strongly, and I know that all football fans often feel like this, but I do feel very strongly that Germany and Sweden have found themselves in quite a difficult group compared to, for example, the England group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Germany, Sweden, South Korea, Mexico is quite palpably more difficult. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I... 
I was more nervous about South Korea than it transpires mm. I should have been. <laughs> but I mean, we. This is the thing about the thing about being a Sweden supporter is that we know that there are things that we can't do. So mm-hmm. the nineteen ninety four World Cup went really well. We lost one game, mm-hmm. and that was to Brazil by one nil, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that was it worked out perfectly. I think we drew one game with Cameroon, the first game, yeah. and then the rest of them were won. And it's like. That's exceptional, but it also is the fact that we met Saudi Arabia in the eighth, mm-hmm. in like the first round, knockout round, um, and after that it was Romania, and it went to penalties, and it was so tense. And part of the experience of 1994 in Sweden is the time difference mm. and the fact that it's summer in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. obviously. But um, you, the whole nation, sat up watching TV mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. at like three and four o'clock in the morning. There was one game on Midsummer's Eve, which is like oh, the biggest thing yeah. in Sweden. It's bigger than Christmas. Um, and Sweden won against Russia with 3-1. Amazing. And it's like, I was 12 at the yeah, time. Yeah. And I, you know, I sat up in a room with my cousins and we had to keep the TV on very, very low volume because mm-hmm. all of our parents were asleep everywhere. But it's, um, yeah, it's like very formative football memories. Yeah. But we know that that's unlikely to happen. Yeah. But we are... This is, whereas my history is We are expecting yeah. to go out of groups. And if we don't, that's a disappointment. This is the thing, like, the last, you know, the last few years... have Not not being, you know, compared to supporting Peterborough, not until kind of... There's 96, and, and then I guess um, I remember the 2002 was during my A-levels and career, the Korea Japan World yeah. Cup. And I remember you know, kind of watching that around A-level games. Because um, I also remember that because Ireland progressed out of the group stages, I think, and then we were immediately knocked out, but it was still... I remember that being Ireland's game... I think either the game that they won to progress out of the group stages or the game where they were knocked out was the night before my English literature <laughs> exam, and I remember sitting kind of half revising in front, and I remember all of the Ireland players holding hands and running and um, sliding across the pitch oh, together yeah. in celebration towards their fans. But then really, you know, the my, you know, sort of the last few World Cups, you know, the 2008 Euros, Germany got to the final, lost 1-0 to Spain. The 2010 World Cup, they got to the semi-finals, but on the way to the semi-finals, they knocked out England 4-1. Oh, wow, they yeah. knocked out Argentina 4-0. Then they lost 1-0 to Spain again. That seems to be a pattern. In the 2016 Euros, they got to the semi-finals. They won the 2014 World Cup like it's yeah. just a completely different experience yeah basically uh, it's the experience of a Malmö fan in the Swedish League yes exactly <laughs> it's like being a Man U fan when I was about 14, 15 yeah or an Arsenal fan when I was what 19 or something or a Man City fan now mm. <laughs> like you just just the experience of winning everything it's not like being a Peterborough fan it's not like being a Queen's Park Ranger fan as well which is my yes England your team. local team uh, last yeah. year was a particular. Last World Cup was a particularly good one because uh, Rihanna got involved. Uh, oh yeah, and uh, went to the post-final party and took selfies with all of her Germany boys, as she called them, and came out in support of Germany for the World Cup, which was a particularly good moment. I'm always happy to have. <laughs> I'm always happy to have my personal choices endorsed by Rihanna. <laughs> so, yeah, there's another reason that I think. Um, the whole England flag and the Sweden Sweden flag as well is um, 
so the Sweden team got easier to support as well because about a decade ago uh, there were a lot more players of uh, immigrant background mm. coming onto the pitch. I mean, famously, Slatan Ibrahimovic is, I suppose, the most famous of all the famous Swedish footballers of all yeah. time, but also with um, immigrant background. Henrik Larsson, for example, and mm-hmm. Martin Dahlin, who were both in the 1994 team, um, have dads from other countries, but mm-hmm. are like brought up in Sweden to Swedish mothers. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Slatan Ibrahimovic, I think, kind of heralded a new era for Swedish football in mm-hmm. which all the kids that play in the, um, like the downtrodden suburbs, mm-hmm. are happy to identify with the Sweden team. And I think that's yeah. very different if you compare Sweden and maybe England as well, actually, mm-hmm. to other countries like France, where I gather that it's. You know, it's the connection to the national team is more difficult because of the role of racism in the official system. That's true. Although they, you know, France also has always had, and you know, for for a long time, it's had quite a diverse team. Yeah, on the, the nineteen ninety eight winning team, right? So Henri or Evra, or the, it's not that it's not that immigrant communities aren't represented. It's just I think in England as well, it's complicated because on one hand. The team is more and more diverse, mm. um, and on one hand, officially, there's much more focus on cracking down on, for example, racist chanting. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on, you know, the kind of kick racism out of football campaigns. The FA has done quite quite important work on this. There's been there was quite a lot of discussion actually before this World Cup about what would happen if players were subjected to racist abuse by, particularly by Russian fans. Mm. Um, and people like Danny Rose, for example, spoke about how. That he felt that would definitely happen, and how difficult that would be, and and basically his kind of despair that there basically was no legal recourse. You can't leave the pitch. You can't, the, you know, the team can't refuse to play. And Southgate, Gareth Southgate, another reason actually that the England team is easier to support. Gareth Southgate seems like quite yeah. a nice manager, right? Yeah. And he spoke about it, and he said in an ideal world the team would walk off the pitch, but that would forfeit your game, and so that's a that's a difficult call, and that's not really something. The England team is going to do in a in a World Cup um, kind of thing. So on one hand, that's really positive, but on the other hand, clearly there's still a lot of racism in Britain around the national team, and particularly, for example, um, in tabloid coverage of the team. So, for example, yeah, the Raheem Sterling saga. The Raheem Sterling saga. So this kind of coverage of Raheem Sterling's. Um, well, it kind of culminated around his tattoo. He has a, an unfinished tattoo of an AK-47 on his leg. He has a tattoo because his... Well, he, he says the story behind his tattoo is that his father was murdered when he was a kid in, in growing up in Jamaica and he's, you know, himself never never touched a gun and this is, you know, an important kind of... It has important symbolic meaning to and him. And it should also be mentioned that this is a tattoo that's completely covered up by his socks. When yeah, he's you can't see it when he's playing anyway. Um, and he wrote a really beautiful piece or, or um, there's a... A website called Players Tribune, which is doing these really wonderful um, pieces that I think are sort of I think they're essentially written up interviews, but they're credited as pieces to the to the players. So mm. They've had a really good one by Raheem Sterling and a really good one by Romelu Lukaku, mm. um, who plays for Belgium, obviously. And both of them spoke about the fact that they're from um, origin, uh, sort of origin. Well, they're from black and minority ethnic backgrounds because actually Lukaku's parents are both Belgium. Uh, his father was uh, a footballer in Belgium before him but that they're both black and that they both play for teams and they both face racism from the mm. press 
you know, and, and, and Lukaku in his piece had the thing that, you know, when I'm playing well, I'm Belgian. And when I'm playing badly, the, the press talk about me as being Belgian of Congolese origin. Mm. Um, and the Raheem Sterling thing, I think, was really put into... The Raheem Sterling story was really put into sharp relief by, I think, a story in The Sun very recently, which was lauding Harry Kane, who is a great striker and who seems like a lovely man. But they were talking about him as... You know, oh, he's got no tattoos, he's polite, he's married to his childhood sweetheart, finally a player that we can get behind. And Raheem Sterling, ha- I mean, has tattoos, yeah, but he's polite and is married to his child. you know, is also married to a childhood sweetheart. The, the, mm. You know, it's clearly racialised and it's dog whistle racism. It's mm. not explicit, but it, it clearly is there. So I think the England team's quite complicated, because on one hand, absolutely... Like, kids around Britain can identify with the England team. Yeah. Oh, sorry, kids around England. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think many Scottish kids identify with them. But kids around England can identify with the England team in a way that yeah. they wouldn't have been able to. But at the same time, it's it's a difficult story, I think. I haven't really been able to follow the Sweden team for, you know, it's difficult to do when you're here. So I, But I, I noticed that in the run-up to the championship that um, there were stories in the press about the fact that they have become quite a white mm. team in recent years um and they're, they're quite a young team actually um which kind of makes it maybe a little bit weird that there aren't more players with like noticeable mm-hmm. other heritage than just like swedish swedish um we used to see a lot more uh, other european surnames i mean particularly mm-hmm. yugoslavia has been a very good donator of mm-hmm. <laughs> of people to uh, Sweden, but you know other countries as well. But there's now quite a lot of son names at Andersons. There are. There was a moment and... in the commentary, I think, where it was three. There was three or four, kind of a nice kind of bit of Sweden passing in the middle of the field, and it was someone son, someone son, someone son. <laughs> yeah, not not quite as good as the Iceland team. Oh um, yeah, but... no, the Iceland team were exclusively sons. But um, yeah, it's so it's. I think it's a bit complicated, but I've always been quite shocked. In Britain, when people... I mean, this is obviously from the days when Slatan Ibrahimovic had an international career. Mm-hmm. But I was quite shocked how often people would say to me, oh, yeah, but he's not Swedish. Mm. And it's like, well, we come from the same city. Mm-hmm. We went to the same school. We are Swedish citizens. Mm-hmm. I think at least one of his parents was a Swedish citizen by the mm-hmm. time Slatan was born. And obviously, like, he obviously is Swedish, is Swedish by the definition of the game. It's not like yeah, FIFA just let you play of, anybody. Like, carrying... Of course. A passport for but, Sweden, right? But even so, if, you know, like, if you're playing for the national team, FIFA has decided that you're national. Yeah, as we've talked about, yeah. you know, previously, nations are invented and borders are arbitrary. Yeah. But, you know, if one of those sets of borders is, you know, you can play for a team if on residency or if you have a grandparent. Yeah. You know, I could play for Germany, even though I, in fact, I could play for the German team, even though I can't get a German passport. And it's also a shame that you're a woman, so you wouldn't be able I to play. I could play for the German women's team, which That's is doing true. very That's well. That's true. That's true. Um, we were thinking a little bit about um, women's football, actually, yeah. women's national football. Yeah. Weren't we, when we sort of thought about this topic? The women in this um, World Cup, there's been a couple of moments with, in Britain, certainly, there's um, there been a couple of moments where women's place in football has been kind of queried or challenged or talked about. Which is interesting because this is the first time that women have actually had a place when it comes to men's World Cup, right? Because even when I left Sweden 16 years ago, there was female expert commentators Mm -hmm. on men's games. So there have been... So when I moved here, there's just been like, it's just been regression. So Jackie Oatley, 
um, eight years ago, so two World Cups ago, she did seven um, World Cup commentaries on Five Live. Mm. So she did commentary, and Jackie Oatley is a, is a very um, distinguished and established football commentator and sports journalist. And she, she has been a kind of radio commentator for the last two World Cups. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of... She was speaking about this yesterday because there's been a lot of um, pushback against Vicky Sparks uh, doing the commentary for televised games. Mm. And there was also um, the moment... Oh, there's also... So there's also, as well as commentators, there have also been female pundits mm. um, in, in the studio. Um, and there was a moment as well with Enya Luco um, where she was giving some very detailed and thoughtful analysis and Patrice Evra reacted kind of astounded astounded as if a dog had started giving analysis I think or as if <laughs> you know as if a, an inanimate object had given its thoughtful and considered analysis on yeah. the World Cup team he he clapped her but in a way that was I think largely incorrectly assumed to be uh, essentially patronizing I didn't see it when it happened and I have someone someone was saying to me that maybe it's it, maybe we're being a bit too harsh on Patrice Evra and maybe he was Generally, just applauding a what was a very um, intelligent, like she's any Luka is very good. As yeah, a she's great. She's, she's a extraordinary. Great she puts most of the sort of random blokes with mm-hmm. the footballing past. <laughs> but this is also the thing with the commentary that, like Vicky Sparks doing the commentary. I'm sorry, but even if, as it has been, so you know, there's always lots of pushback against women doing commentary because men don't like women's voices. Yes. Women's voices are not... This is something we know very well from our research on parliamentary women, right? Yes, and indeed from, you know, just being women who speak in public. Um, Men don't really like women's voices. Men don't feel that women's voices are authoritative. The markers of authority are coded male. So Mm. things that women do a lot. So, for example, using filler words, going up at the end of sentences, um, vocal fry, which is less of a thing for English women, but a lot for Americans, are coded as being... How would you explain vocal fry? Vocal fry is... I'm trying to do it now. It's, it's like when you... Um, it, it's a kind of tone, I guess. Yeah. That's the best way of describing it. It's a kind of tone. I have it sometimes when I talk and not other times. Um, yeah. But Well, we'll find a proper definition for it. We'll find I think it. it's there's a really good. There's a really good Anne Friedman article about it, and there was a very good issue of This American Life mm. uh, where Ira Glass pointed out that he has vocal fry, but only the women on his podcast ever get criticised for it. Yeah. So it's seen as being a feminine trait, even though it's not really. I find it really fascinating that people basically stop listening and mm-hmm. they listen to the voice rather than the words coming out of that person's mouth. Yes. But that seems to be happening a lot with certain men who hear women... Uh, talking about stuff that they are only used to ha- ever hearing men talk about. The thing is, there is no way Any that Vicky Sparks... makes a lot more sense than Alan Shearer. Exactly, and there is no way that Vicky Sparks' voice can be more annoying than Mark Lawrenson. Oh, God, no. Who is... Who, yeah, who is just incredibly miserable about everything he watches. <laughs> There's also the... Um, I mean, there was an article in the... I think, actually, in the Observer, there was an article in a newspaper written by a male sports journalist who said that getting women... Female footballers to commentate on men's football was like getting netball players to commentate on what he called World Series basketball, which is not actually a thing. He means, I presume, the NBA. But... Or World Series baseball. Or World Series baseball. You know, which would be odd, because netball players, you know... 
Different sports. Netball player. Netball is different to basketball. Women's mm. football is not different to men's football. They are the same sport. I don't think we need to say that to the people who listen to this podcast. But the you know that kind of idea that that there was this sort of idea in this article that you know that they couldn't possibly talk about men's football because they play women's football. Mm. As if John Motson, seasoned British commentator, who was never a footballer, you know he's perfectly apparently perfectly fine commentating on men's football matches yeah it's that thing that women have to have more expertise than equivalent but at the same time women's expertise isn't but i think that is a really interesting point that um women's football in comparison to the men's football there is there are few areas in this world where the gender gap is as visible Mm -hmm. as when it comes to sport in general but particularly football yes absolutely um and it starts quite early i mean i played football mm. organized in a club um when i was i don't know 13 14 mm-hmm. maybe um and it, it's a well-established well-run club in malmo it's kuladals ff if anyone mm-hmm. comes from the southern burbs like me um We've actually had a player in the 1994 World Cup, actually. Mm. Stefan Schwartz, who Arsenal mm. fans might remember. Um, but he, the, we had to, there was one girls team, basically, and we had to go and sell stuff in order to make money for, mm-hmm. like, everything else. The boys didn't have to. They kind of, at that age, got mm-hmm. sponsor money to take care of them. I remember when we spoke about this in our first episode. The yeah. very first episode where we talked about, or maybe the second, where we talked about exercise and bodies. Yeah. And that there is this, you know, at, at every level, there's this disparity between men's sport and women's sport. Mm. And in some areas, it's smaller and closer, like gymnastics, Olympic gymnastics, for example. It's coded as quite feminine, although quite clearly, you know, there are many men who do gymnastics who, mm. you know, have both strength and precision as female gymnasts do. But football is one of those spaces where it's coded just immediately as men. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing with the World Cup. It's the men's World Cup, right? There is a mm. women's World Cup. Um, there is a Women's World Cup in which both Sweden and England women's teams do better than oh yeah their comparative male teams in the Men's World Cup. Yeah, Sweden um, got a bronze and oh, a silver in the mm. Olympics. Yeah, the Lionesses came, I think, got a bronze I in the most so. recent one. Yeah. They came third in the most recent one, which is you know far beyond what England have managed to do in the last however many World Cups. Well, fifty odd yes. years. I mean. <laughs> There, I, I found this incredible statistic with the, the, the gender pay gap. You know, internationally, the gender pay gap in football is worse than a gender pay gap in anything else, in politics, in medicine, in space. This incredible statistic that the combined pay of the women playing in the top seven women's football leagues around the world, all, all every single woman playing in the top seven leagues, their combined pay is almost exactly the same as Neymar's pay. Mm. So Neymar earns £32.9 million for his, from uh, Paris Saint-Germain for his 2017-2008 season. So he's just earned £32.9 million. And his salary is almost identical to the combined salary of 1,693 female players in the league in France, Germany, England, America, Sweden, Australia and Mexico, mm. which are the, the seven leagues with the biggest kind of... Um, professional women's teams. Yeah, that, I mean the that's best incredible. Women's the best, the best leagues. women's, the best women's league around the world. That's incredible. Yeah, in Sweden, which is a country that has historically done very well in mm-hmm. women's football, since women's football was officially 
Yes. International football was kind of officially started in 1991, right? Yeah. With the World Cup in China. Yes. Sweden has always done quite well, and we're very disappointed when they don't do well because that's we're sort of like Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Comes, well, Germany is also like Germany when it comes to women's football, but but like the big powers, the US is also weirdly very big on women's football. Well, in America, it's it's soccer is more of a women's sport, yeah. isn't it? So, I mean, because you. You Sweden hosted in ninety five, right? Yeah. And then America hosted in ninety nine. Yeah. And in America, the ninety nine, well, the ninety five was apparently the first year they played ninety minute matches. So previous to that, it had been they had been shorter matches to protect women's poor, delicate ladies. Yes. Bits. Yeah. Um, and then in nineteen ninety nine, there were sixteen teams. Uh, America wins in nineteen ninety nine, yeah. uh, and there's this moment where. Uh, Brandy Chastain scores and she whips off her top as male footballers do, but obviously yeah. she just has a sports bra on underneath. Yeah, it's a nice kind of good visual for the photographers. Good visual for the photographers, but yeah, at the same time, it's just <laughs> a sports bra is quite covered. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the thing. It's not. It's not like a wonder bra. Is they're it? just looking for the image, right? In, it's... Bizarrely, in the article I read about this, um, or in an article I read about this, which was written by a female journalist, and which was otherwise quite a good article about the rise of the Women's World Cup, it described her as bra-wielding. She's just wearing it. She hasn't, yeah. she's not swinging it around her head. It's mm. just... She's not about to go and burn it on the... No, no, it's just either. it's just hanging out where they normally hang out. But I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that... So Sweden has a very good women's international team. We have a mm-hmm. very a very good league. Um, again, it's uh, the Malmö team, Wilson <laughs> Gord this time. Mal- Malmö FF doesn't actually have a women's team, which is horrific. Mm. They had one, but the club went into financial troubles in the early, well, maybe 16, 17 years ago. And of course, sacrificing the women's team. Sacrificing is... the women's team. I think they do have girls' teams now, though, mm. and that started just a few years ago. But um, the women's team representing Malmö is at Orson Gord FC, and they are, you know, they make the top of the Champions League yep. semi-finals and finals regularly. But the women who play in the Sweden Swedish league, and this is Sweden, right, mm-hmm. with gender equality and very progressive laws and legislation on the gender pay gap and stuff, mm-hmm. they still make a seventh of the money that the men make in the league and they most of them even the professional the elite women have to keep down full-time jobs yeah which is of course then instrumental in the game not looking as professional exactly so when people talk about it being being, uh slower there used to be suggestions that women's pitches should be smaller because Mm -hmm. they were slower And all sorts of other things. It's like, no, they just need to be paid. Mm-hmm. And there's a really good um, research done by a um, also an academic at Malmö University. <laughs> um, weirdly, everything is about Malmö today. But she's saying, Susanna Hedenboy, she's saying that all the sort of arguments that you need to create the market before mm-hmm. there's a kind of before people want to watch women's football mm-hmm. women have to make women, football watchable yeah <laughs> she's saying that that's you know that's not how it works markets aren't perfect and particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to gender bias yeah, you have to so intervene. sponsors need to mm-hmm. you know they make a conscious decision not to sponsor women's football mm-hmm. it's not that they put all their money into men's football they actually take it from women's where it should be going to women's football so they don't need smaller pitches. They don't need to be faster. They just need to be able to practice more, yeah. train more, have access to the pitches at daytime, not having to compete with boys' teams in the evenings. I've mm-hmm. heard stories of 
professional women's football teams in Sweden who've been turfed off the pitch when like the 14 year old boys arrive and you just think it's you know that it's just such a window like a very clearly washed Mm -hmm. uh, sparkling window into all the gender inequalities that kind of just bubble up below the surface it's there if you want to look at it See, in England as well, there's always this, you know, you get these very tiresome arguments about, you know, women's football's not as good or it's not as watchable. But again, it's not about the market. In England, it's about... So there's a history of women's football being discriminated against and and stamped out, essentially. So um, kind of the history of women's football in England is... In 1894, the British Ladies Football Club is founded by a woman who has possibly the best name... If you were going to be, if you were going to be involved in football as a Victorian woman, her name is Nettie Honeyball. So Nettie Honeyball is the secretary and captain <laughs> of the first British Ladies Football Club. If you were called Nettie Honeyball, you cannot do anything else but found the first British Ladies Women uh, Football Club. Um, so she's a mid- middle class woman. She founds this um, team. The first game is in Crouch End in eighteen ninety five in front of ten thousand people, um, and initially women's football is played as a kind of spectacle it's seen as a kind of amusing thing I mean again in my kind of dog talking analogy it's seen as a kind of interesting thing that you can go and watch women play this sort of um look at them run yes exactly like look at the funny ladies doing this funny thing that men normally do but it gets better and better and in fact it's actually the first world war when men go off to fight women move into factories and so have kind of spare money and free time and also are kind of associating more with other women, Mm. they start to play football and they basically take over the football clubs that factories would have had and start playing in the, you know, setting up women's leagues. Um, And so there's a very famous, um, the sort of probably the most famous women's footballer at this time is a woman called Lily Parr. She's six foot tall. She scored a thousand goals in her 31 year playing career. Wow. 34 of those were in her first season when she was 14. She once, she had, she, you know, she's, she's six foot tall. She had a shot so hard that she once broke the arm of a male goalkeeper mm. who tried to, um, tried to uh, save her shot. She is also the first woman ever to be sent off in an official football game for fighting. So she's a formidable woman. My kind of woman. And she played for um, a team called the Dick Kerr Ladies, uh, which were factory ladies in Preston. And they became celebrities and a mm. huge draw. So they became a team that people actually wanted to watch. Um and there's this sort of crowds who initially, you know, initially it was kind of women played football to raise money for war charities. It was a kind of novelty thing. Yeah. Increasingly, it becomes seen as actually a serious sport. Um, this kind of skill actually becomes important. They set up something called the Munitionettes Cup in 1917. They start playing, you know, kind of um, more and more. They're getting huge numbers of players. In 1920, a Boxing Day match between the Dick Kerr ladies and the St. Helens ladies is watched with fi- by 53,000 people at Goodison Park mm. at the Everton ground, with 14,000 people locked outside the ground trying to get in to watch. So it has this, inc- you know, it's a proper sport. People want to see it. It's it has a popular inc- sport. And it's a market. There's a market, right? Mm. The reason that women's football doesn't go to strength for strength past that point is in 1921. The FA, the British uh, Football Association, bans um, not exactly women's football. They ban women's football being played in men's grounds. Mm. With um, 
The statement is, complaints having been made as to football being played by women, the FA Council feel impelled to express their strong opinion that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. And um, and this is partly because some of the charity games, some of the money is going to the women as salaries, but it's mostly because men coming back from the war are very unhappy that women have taken this public space. Mm. And because the FA itself disapproves and they start, they get doctors to say that football is bad for women. Yeah. Um, and this kind of comes in and so clearly because all you get after a professional women's game is like I don't know uterus is lying around yeah they just fall out they just fall out (laughs) when you're running around Um, so they they ban football being played on any FA Cup member clubs grounds so any team that's a member of the FA um, can't have football and then and that's pretty much all the football clubs all of them so then women start playing on rugby league grounds cricket grounds um there is example like women played in the Speedway Stadium in Manchester, wow. um, but then the FA starts putting uh, pressure on other sports not to host these games as well, and so basically women are just left with no space in which they can play commercial games. Yeah, there, there's nowhere that they can have have games where people can pay to see them, and that means you can't raise any money, and that means the game kind of take off, can't take off. And so, you know, it it's a deliberate kind of limiting of it, it's a deliberate kind of pushing down, and then so women's football in Britain then doesn't it just doesn't get going for a really long time um I kind of feel like it's only re-emerging now like maybe in the last six eight years yeah um there's a bit of an awareness of it I remember seeing uh, there was an ad for like Cadbury's chocolate bars mm-hmm. earlier this year that I walked past on my way to nursery every day um, and it included like I don't know five, six male football players, yeah. but one woman. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was right at the end of, of the poster, but she's still but there. But she was there, and I thought to myself, that would never have happened. No, not even not even eight years ago. I don't think that would have happened. I think the World Cup, the Women's World Cup in nineteen ninety one, coming in is important. Um, and then I think FIFA starts to put more pressure on national teams to have women's football from from the. Um, from 1991 they start to encourage um teams for they start to encourage lady uh, women's teams yeah. in in countries that are sending men's teams to the world cup and basically. i think also in the british or english i suppose circumstance i think it's important that women's football is less developed in the way that although there are these big nations that mm-hmm. win things it's still more open mm-hmm. than men's football. Yeah. So you don't have the same kind of extreme dominance by a couple of teams. You have at least four or five yeah. teams that are competing. And so the, the being able to be one of those mm-hmm. and not being it. Because like, yeah. England hasn't been in contention up until about four years ago. Yeah. If even four years ago. It's like yeah. the last Olympics or something that England first managed to, to yeah. make, a, make a proper... Um, inroads into the women's mm-hmm. exactly and, and it shows the importance of investment and things yeah and also of commercial so also of um league teams um developing women's side to so arsenal yeah. ladies arsenal ladies was was for a long time was like the classic women's mm. team in, in england a lot of the english ladies players. chelsea is like one of the dominant teams yes that's a bit sad but there's a lot of women footballers who actually make a pretty decent living yeah, out of who, being Chelsea players yes and they, they, they kind of come through I mean one of the things they still have to do their own laundry though I yes. mean John Terry never had to do that 
one of the things that I have always said that I thought would be important here. So in Britain, we have uh, regulations that if um, when a team gets into the Premiership, they have to have uh, seated stadiums. Right. So basically in England, we've moved from having um, a lot of standard stadiums. So Peterborough United, for example, behind the goal is still a standing Mm. um, terrace, which means it's cheap and people enjoy it for the atmosphere. But because of the legacy of Hillsborough, basically, in Britain, and this is actually slightly wrongheaded and it's sort of another conversation, but but partly because of the legacy of Hillsborough and partly because of other safety concerns, there was a move towards having seated Mm. standing in seated stadiums. terraces in in um in London, you can both stand and drink so, alcohol so this is the thing well in lots of european con- uh, countries have safe standing mm-hmm. where you have the thing where you can you have standing but you have the rows so that yeah. you're kind of kept in so in england standing is just in a space and this is why people are worried about it so a lot of people have campaigned for safe standing to people in in england but at the moment we don't have that and if you're in the premier league in in england you have to have a standing stadium so lots of seated a seated stadium sorry so lots of teams if they're in the championship and it looks like they might get promoted they have to spend money on this it's it's something i think you do get a little short grace period but basically people do it looking to go up i mean peterborough who are not in the championship are still in the process of building a new stadium that is entirely seated Mm. with the idea that eventually this will become a loftus road where qpr plays is fully uh, seated exactly uh, but um, they also have a tradition of going up and down really. exactly <laughs> and in which case you need to do it but anyway like given that we have that sort of legislation i have always thought that one of the things that should also be brought in is that teams who want to go up into the premiership have to have a women's team yeah and that the women's team has to have a there should also be rules i think again on a percentage spend yeah. so there should be a rule that if you're a premiership football team you have to spend x amount of money on your mm. women's team like a proportion, and only eight percent would be millions and millions and exactly. millions more than yeah. I mean, basically, if you had to spend for a Premiership team, if they had to spend the cost of one player, if you had to spend what you pay your goalkeeper on your women's team, mm. that would be salaries for an entire team of women, yeah, basically for a year for most of them. And you, because I think until you have some sort of like formal legislation, it's going to be a very very long process. But it is it is you're right, it's developing. It's a good thing. Yes. Uh, it's developing, but it's also showing us all that needs to happen for anything to be remotely equal yes. when it comes to sport. I've got a point. You've got a point. Yeah. I've got a point. It's uh, Caroline Duffy, who is a slightly divisive um, figure, but we haven't had her yet in my uh, pantheon <laughs> of female poets. Uh, it's a point called Sub, from her book Feminine Gospel. And um, the story of the poem is about a woman who is secretly um, not only present at uh, but also actually instrumental in all of the key sporting moments over the last however long. And so the first sort of um, stanza is, I came on in extra time in 66, my breasts bandaged beneath my number 13 shirt and put it in off the head, the back of the heel, the left foot from 30 yards out, hat trick. If they'd thought the game was all over, it was now. I felt secure as I danced in my dazzling whites with the cup, tampon, but I skipped the team bath with the lads, sipped my champagne in the solitary shower as the blood and soap sucks mingled to pink. They sang my name on the other side of the steam. And she also, a bit later in it, so she has this long career where she um, steps up for Beefy and the cricket. Uh, she goes on the moon um, with uh, Neil. She stands in for Buzz Aldrin to go on the moon. She stands in for one of the Beatles. Um, she plays guitar with Bob for the band. And she also has this moment where she says, motherhood kept me busy at home till my girl started to school. Not match fit. I was talked into management when Taylor went. Caretaker role. Jack that in after the World Cup win. Beckham free kick in extra time. 
so yeah she paints this kind of alternative picture where she managed England to World Cup glory yeah in 98 great I guess um we have recommendations though we do um so what's your recommendation well we were thinking about um well feminist things you could wear or buy or buy. a bit of feminist <laughs> merch basically yeah feminist merch is a very good good name for it all so I'm going to recommend the embroideries by um, Chelsea, who sells, she has a shop on Etsy called Thread the Wick. Mm-hmm. She is the person who embroidered the ovary squad mm. thing, which we we're obviously going to put a photo of somewhere so you can see it on our footnotes. Um, but we used it for episode seven when we mm-hmm. talked about women's health. Um, she actually has, she sells the embroidery finished, but she also sells kits mm. so you can make your own. So that's going to be my recommendation for today. Um, my recommendation is um, it's a specific I- item and, and a shop generally. So the uh, shop is called Tiny Comrade. Uh, and again, we'll put a link to it online. It's um, run by um, a woman uh, called Edie, who is also on Twitter. And Tiny, Tiny Comrade has a, has a Twitter account as well. Um, they make lots of different things. So she she prints T-shirts essentially, but she prints T-shirts for adults as well as children and bibs as well. She has some really lovely um, kind of lefty kids uh, ones. So she has a, a bib that says Class Snuggle, for example, <laughs> which I really like. But the specific item I'm recommending is uh, a T-shirt that says Street Harassment is Not a Compliment. Uh, and I'm recommending this particularly in this episode because she has agreed to print it onto fast, like sweat wicking uh, t-shirt so that you can wear it while you're running mm. so this if for those of you who are not runners or don't don't want a kind of gym t-shirt she also does it on a regular t-shirt and a tote bag um but it's um the very reasonably priced gym t-shirt with the logo on i think would be excellent for dealing with some of the concerns that we again spoke about in our in our exercise episode episode all those yeah. episodes ago about maybe we should set up a women's football team wearing those t-shirts we could do <laughs> we, we should do and um, the tomorrow never knows women's football team i will be the uh manager um, <laughs> i will be the very shouty person who gets sent off all the time there we go excellent that's it we have we have no more today that's, this is the world cup and then we have a big showdown at the end of this week when our teams are gonna make it through to the knockout rounds yes. or not so yeah i hope everyone's world cup wishes come true yeah i hope england do okay but not too well <laughs> Um, And uh, we'll see you all soon. Yes. Bye. Bye.